Amen. Can we thank Mick and the team, please? Because they've done a fantastic job this morning. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, well, good morning and uh, welcome to our uh, continuation of the Beatitude series. Uh, if you remember, Vicky introduced the series uh, asking about our overall posture and how we can carve out time to listen. Have you been able to do that? A little bit? Have you been able to do that? <laughs> yeah? Come on, I need some help. There's fewer of us today. And you need to smile at me more. Oh, thank you. That's lovely. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Joe picked it up and talked about uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, and then Rose last week, blessed are those who mourn. Uh, but I don't think we've explained yet why these are called Beatitudes, have we? So I had a quick uh, Google that scholarly uh, uh, device of a Google search. And apparently, the phrase comes from the Vulgate Bible. Now, the Vulgate Bible was written in Latin, and it was the main Bible of the church from around AD 400, that's 400 years after Jesus uh, was born, up until the 16th century. And it's still used by the Latin church today. And in the Vulgate Bible... The start of each phrase of Matthew 5, what we call the Beatitudes, is, and you have to say this with a, an Italian accent, Beatisunt. So can you say that, please? Beatisunt. Now, you need to get more Italian than that. Don't worry, the coronavirus won't get you just by pretending to be Italian. So, Beatisunt. And, and that means, blessed are. So we get this sort of Beatitudes from that Beati bit. But I like Vicky's explanation that they are beautiful attitudes. Thank you. Yes. So, today we're looking at the third beatitude, meek. And the film we watched earlier looked at who the meek are, who the other people are, who we need to focus on and care for who are meek. Um, but I'm going to now turn our attention towards ourselves and I want us to think more about Jesus' words, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth, and ask ourselves three questions. Firstly, what do these words mean? What on earth does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to inherit the earth? And how do those words echo through scripture? Secondly, why aren't we automatically meek when we become a Christian? After all, we're a new creation, we're made in the image of God, and we have the Holy Spirit. So, what is it that gets in the way of our meekness? And finally, when we've thought of all that, how do we grow in meekness? What needs to happen? What can we do, and how can we become more and more conformed to the meek image of Jesus? So, let me ask you a question. How meek are you right now? On a scale, if I had a, a meter, a meekometer, that started at naught, which is not even in my little fingernail, am I even a little bit meek? And it went up to 10, which is, oh, I am so meek. There is no one more meek than me. Where would you put yourself? Think of a number. Then without breaking any of the rules that the elders have set for us keeping a distance between each other, not touching each other and not spitting on each other, tell the person next to you how meek you are and why you've given yourself that number. Just 30 seconds, go. How meek are you? How have you given yourself that number? 
Now touching. Ten is the mouse meek person, one's unmeek. You won. <laughs> oh, you're meek. Okay, it's a bit like asking how humble you are, aren't you? Oh, I'm really humble. I'm good at humble, I am. I am so fantastically humble. Um, but I, I don't know how you felt about that, but just, just bear that number in mind. Bear your meekness in mind as we go and we look at these questions. But just before we do, I want to set the scene. Now, to set the scene, we need to remember that the Beatitudes is just the first little bit of what we now know as the Sermon on the Mount. And that spans from Matthew 5 all the way to the end of Matthew 7. And so what I recommend you do is when you're thinking about the Beatitudes, although we're only covering that first little bit, could you go and read Matthew 5, 6 and 7? Ideally, all as one sitting, but if, if that's a bit much, try and read Matthew 5, 6 and 7 so that we don't just get these first bits of the Beatitudes, we get what Jesus went on to say about them. Um, but when we look at where we are in Matthew 5, at this point in his life, Jesus is now a recognised Jewish rabbi, a teacher. And a couple of chapters back in chapter 3, uh, Matthew says that John the Baptist said that here's Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He's been baptised by John the Baptist and he's heard the fathers say, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased and the Holy Spirit has descended on Jesus in the form of a dove. So that happened in chapter 3. Then in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has gone out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And then he's returned in the power of the Holy Spirit to begin his ministry. He's begun to preach the gospel, he's called his first disciples, and he's started to heal the sick. And so we get to Matthew 5, and Jesus is teaching a, a whole multitude of people on the mountain who've either heard or seen Jesus' miracles, have listened to his teaching before or heard about him being a teacher and they've come to this mountain hillside and followed him there. And in these Beatitudes, we have the words of Jesus. A Jewish teacher teaching Jewish people, recorded by a Jewish writer, Matthew, to provide us with some of the most beautiful scripture in the Bible. In fact, some of the most beautiful thoughts that have ever been spoken in the history of humankind. And it gives us a window into the mind and the heart of God. Now, the words behind the Beatitudes are not just beautiful themselves, but they have something called literary symmetry. And this literary symmetry is itself beautiful. And if you look at the Beatitudes, they follow this symmetry. They start with a promise. Blessed are you. Blessed are those. Then there's a guiding principle. Who are poor in spirit, who mourn, or today, who are meek. And then there's an outcome. These Beatitudes give us a beautiful picture of what happens when you're blessed 
because of the principle, you will, let's say, um, see God. You will have the kingdom of heaven. You will be comforted. So the literary symmetry of this passage today in Matthew 5, 5, the condition is the word blessed. Blessed are you. The guiding principle is when you're meek. And the outcome is for you shall inherit the earth. So let's get into those three questions. The first of the three questions is what does this mean? And let's start at looking what it means to be blessed. Now I don't know about you, but I think the English word blessed has become a little bland maybe, a little weak maybe. Oh, bless you. Oh, bless you. But both Rose and Joe said that the Greek word for blessed is makarios. Again, we get to practice. Let's practice our Greek. Makarios. That was Italian again, wasn't it? Sorry. Can somebody say makarios in Greek? Makarios. I expected a bit more than that, thank you. Thank you, that's lovely. So makarios. Now, Jews, like Jesus, would have spoken Greek. Uh, It was their second language. Uh, The Greek culture and the Greek language dominated the city of the Decapolis, where Jesus lived. And the New Testament was written, in the main, in Greek. So makarios, you can see on the screen, is much richer than what we think of today as blessed. It is about becoming larger. Now, not looking at anybody on the worship team, but some of us don't need to become very much larger. Not in a physical sense, anyway. Do we, Joe or Mick or Will? Not at all. But this isn't about physical largeness. This is something different. This is about becoming larger in God's benefits, in his favour and in his grace. So that's the Greek side of things. But then again, we can get some more richness because we know that Jesus was a Jew from Nazareth and his native dialect was Aramaic. This was his main language. It says it in the Bible uh, when it talks about Jesus speaking that way. So in Aramaic, the word that we translate as blessed is, now I, don't, I really don't know how to say this, but it's tuwehon. So this word tuwehon means enriched. Fortunate, great happiness, delighted, prosperity, abundant goodness. And probably the best English phrase is blissfully contented. Now, who wants to be blissfully contented? Does that sound like I could buy into that? Who wants to be blessed? So now that we know what it means to be blessed, let's jump to the end of the phrase and inherit the earth. Well, if you want the condition of being blessed... That's further good news. You will inherit the earth. And as Stu G said, surely this doesn't make sense. In the world, it's the strong, those who stick up for themselves, the go-getters, the grasping and the ambitious. Surely those sorts of people get to inherit the earth. So that's the first odd thing. The second thing is, why on earth would anyone, well, want to inherit the earth? Why would that be? So let's think about a scriptural and spiritual point of view on this rather than a worldly view. One of the most famous verses that Christians get to memorise is John 3.16. God so loved the... 
God so loved the, thank you, that he gave his one and only son. So first, God loves the world so much that he gave Jesus and gave him to die on a cross. Why does God love the world? Well, because he made it and because he said it's good. If you go to the very first part of the Bible, right at the beginning, Genesis 1, verse 1, the first words are, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then a little later on, it said, God called the dry ground land and gathered the waters and he called those the seas and God saw that it was good. So God created the world and he saw that it was good and that's one reason why we would want to inherit it. But it doesn't stop there. God then creates human beings in his own image and he gives them the land as their assignment. Verse 28 says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So this idea of inheriting the earth or the land is echoed in scripture because it's God's original design. It's God's original assignment for us. And you know what? Satan knew the importance of this when he was tempting Jesus. He took him to a high place and he showed him all of the land and all of the kingdoms of the world and said, I'll give you all this if you bow down and worship me. Satan knew that inheriting the earth was a valued prize. And he was trying to get Jesus really to take a shortcut. He was trying to get him to shortcut the cross and gain what is rightfully ours illegitimately. But Jesus knew the importance of the mission. He knew that he had to get back legitimately, win back the world for his father and as an inheritance for us. And he did this on the cross. So we will be blessed and we will inherit the land if we are meek. So, on your meekometer, let me ask you, why didn't you give it a 10? I know Mick did, but why didn't the rest of us give it a 10? What gets in the way of this? Why don't we immediately become weak when we're saved? Because the Bible says, when we're saved, we become a new creation. It says, the old has gone and the new has come. But although at a certain point in our life, we may decide to follow Jesus, and at that moment, we change from death to life, we then spend a lifetime working out that choice. The Bible says that the idea of salvation isn't a one-time decision. It's a process of becoming whole, of stepping into the fullness of who God made us to be. So becoming truly meek is a lifetime work. And for some of us, it's a harder lifetime work than others. But the Bible says we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So that over time, we become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. That's your assignment, to become more and more like Christ as we're transformed from glory to glory through the renewing of our mind. It's an act of grace 
But it is co-laboring with the Holy Spirit. This idea of us playing our part in becoming meek. And as part of working out that salvation, the Bible says that we have to put off the old man. And St. Paul in his letters uses this idea about walking in the spirit, but there's something that gets in the way of that called the desires of the flesh. And this idea of the flesh and the old man were sort of the same thought that Jesus talked about when he talked about the self. Jesus said we have to deny ourselves and pick up our cross daily and follow him. But what does it mean? Well, to try and explain that, you need to understand that there are two selves that exist. There's the false self, and then there's the true self. And the true self is meek. And the false self really isn't. The full self is a consequence of the fall. It's the part of us that we identify as apart from God. It's the mask we wear. It's the image we create. It's what we think is our real self. But this full self is really the ego. That's what gets in the way of us being meek. You see, the false self is a fearful self. Fear is the alternative to being a true child of God. When we don't have perfect union and perfect love in Christ, then fear is the result. And this fear is at the core of our full self. And the full self is a protective self. Without our true identity being planted in the union with God, our full self relies solely on our own resources for identity, for meaning, for value and purposes. And so then the full self ends up being a possessive self. It sinks its tendrils of our identity into things like possession, money, status, role, power, always wanting more, never satisfied with having enough. And then the full self becomes a self-promoting self where we not God, are the centre of our lives. And so the full self always promotes our own agenda above others. And the noble actions that we take are taken with one eye on those who might be watching. And our best motives become stained with a need for approval and affirmation. And the full self is really an indulgent self. Because we don't abide in the centre of the one whose presence is the fullness of joy, our full self must find joy and pleasure elsewhere. We live to fulfil our desires, not just to bring us pleasure, but to authenticate our identity. Gratification of our desires usually comes at the expense of those others that the film talked about. And the full self can be a manipulative self. We don't always realise it, but we seek ways to leverage the world and those in it. And to do that in ways that give us the most advantage. For our own security, for our prestige and for our own agendas. And it's usually again the weak, the vulnerable and the marginalised that lose in that game. The very ones 
that the Bible tells us to care for. And as I was writing this, I thought, oh my life, what a wretched, unmeek, full self I am. What a lot of wretched, unmeek, full selves. So can you see why Jesus told us we have to crucify that full self? And I look at this list and I think, flipping heck. I've got so much that gets in the way of my own meekness. And do you remember when Paul gives all those false self-credentials in Philippians 3? Circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, zeal for, the persecuting, zeal for persecuting the church. <coughs> and I thought about my own list and I could have said, well, I've been an AOG pastor since 2011, full ministry status since 2013. I've got a PhD in theology from a world top 30 ranking university and it was all focused on church leadership not just that but I was supervised by one of the most senior theologians at Oxford University probably the top in the world not only that I became a Christian 18 years ago in 2001 in less than a year I literally gave up and lost everything that this world has to offer because I chose to continue to follow Christ rather than the flesh ain't that flipping great well no it's not like Paul says, he considers all this false, self, fleshy stuff dung, excrement, dog poo, if you want me to be explicit about the actual translation of the Greek. And he feels it's that way that he may gain and be found in Christ. And yet the amazing thing is that this apostle Paul, this brilliant apostle, Although he wanted to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and he wanted to become like Jesus, Paul says he still has not already obtained this, verse 12. Even Paul hadn't got there. Still on a journey towards greater meekness and Christ-likeness. So there's hope for us all. But before I talk about that hope, there's one more thing that's even more dangerous than the full self. And this is the religious full self. Because the religious full self always avoids a transforming relationship with God. But it can always justify that with scripture. If you notice in the Bible, Jesus always had plenty of time for those who recognised their sin. Those who were poor in spirit because they knew they needed help. The people Jesus berated, the people he chastised, the people he got most angry with and had the most criticism for, who were they? They were the religious leaders. They were the epitome of the religious full self. Because actually they thought they'd got it all together. They didn't recognise their need. They were not meek. They were not poor in spirit. And the reason the religious full self is dangerous is because it fools us into thinking that we've got it all together. And so instead of being transformed by God, we learn to follow the rules of churchianity. This mask gets in the way of what we really like. Because the Bible says the religious full self is like a whitewashed tomb. It looks great on the outside following all the rules, but inside there is a dead, 
false self that is ruling our lives. And isn't it a mysterious paradox that when we become a Christian and we're baptized into the death of Christ, it is this old man or the false self or the flesh that's put to death and yet still it reigns in us. So that gives us a responsibility and Jesus was very clear we have a responsibility to deny this self. We have to crucify it on the cross daily. So be careful about your own religious false self. If you read that list that I put up earlier, the fearful, possessive, defensive, self-promoting and indulgent, and you think, well, that's not me, then either you have really scored 10 on the meek meter or there's a religious false self that's getting in the way. So if our meter is less than 10, what do we do about this whole messy business? What is the hope? What is the good news? Let's have a look at some good news about how we grow in meekness. Now, to understand how we grow in meekness, I want to go a little bit deeper in understanding what does it mean to be meek. And the Cambridge Dictionary says that meek, so this is, this is the English definition of meek, is quiet and gentle and not willing to argue or express an opinion in a forceful way. So that, that, that's our understanding of meek. Biblically, I think Paul captures the essence of meekness in Ephesians 4 verse 2. And it's up on the screen. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now again... The Aramaic word for meekness is what I want you to say. And it's makiki. Makiki, can you say it? Makiki. You can go to your workplaces or self-isolate and do it by Skype and say, I learnt a new word, makiki. Now, this makiki word means gentle and flexible. Claiming nothing as your own not grasping. And I love that because it reminds me of Philippians 2, verse 6 in the Bible, where it says Jesus, by his very nature, was God. And even though he was fully God, he didn't think of equality with God as something to be grasped at. So this idea of meekness combines humility and gentleness and not grasping. And, and it reminded me of another picture of Jesus. The beautiful picture at the Last Supper. Where Jesus takes off his outer garment or his mantle. And he lays it aside. And he wraps a lowly towel around him taking the posture of a servant. And he washes the disciples' feet as a picture of Jesus's beautiful meekness. Do you know what he did once he'd done that? Do you know what he said to his disciples? He said, you've got to do the same. And do you know in this room who are Jesus' disciples? Yep, we are. So Jesus calls us into that beautiful picture of meekness that lives in an upside-down kingdom. Jesus' kingdom was upside down because when the disciples said, who's the greatest? Jesus didn't say it was wrong to be great. But what he did say was, if you want to be the great, you must become the least. 
He said, you don't take the highest place of honour at a table. No, 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 no. You take the lowliest position and then you can be promoted to a better position. That those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is meekness. And going along with meekness is that idea that we get rid of that quick-to-anger spirit. We resist the temptation to have a hair-trigger temper. We become slow to condemn others or to write someone off. We're quick to listen, but slow to critique. I tell you, I've got some work to do on that one. We don't think of ourselves more highly than others. You're nodding there, Vicky. <laughs> the essence of meekness is the opposite of pride, of arrogance, of drivenness. James 3.13 says, Who is wise and understanding amongst you? Let them show it by their good life, by the deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, then considerate. It's submissive, it's full of mercy and full of good fruit. It's impartial and sincere. All of these are pictures of meekness. It's all about meekness. It's a posture. It's a true kingdom way. It's a way of being in a world that would tell you to do exactly the opposite. And if you're not growing in meekness, if you've been a Christian for years, but you're not growing in meekness, you might read your Bible every day. That's a good thing to do. You might pray for many hours. But could I suggest, if you're not growing in meekness, you haven't even made the start of the true, deeper spiritual path and journey that Jesus calls us to, the narrow way. But saying all of this, can I say that meekness isn't the absence of passion or conviction. Meek isn't weak. Indeed, the picture of Jesus is the meekness of a lamb, but the power and authority of a lion. And he calls us to emulate him. And I love this because Jesus said, how do we do that? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Okay, so we're learning from Jesus. What are we learning to do? For I am meek or gentle and lowly or humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Blessed are the meek. So can you see how meek is woven through scripture? How he echoes in the life of Jesus. It's present through all the New Testament epistles. And it's the essence of eternal kingdom living for us today. So as I close, let's think about what do we need to do to grow in meekness. Well, firstly... I think we need to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. If you look at the list of the attributes of the fruit of the Spirit, what are they? They are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, goodness, 
Can, can you see how that list is all the things that we've been talking about? So if you want to grow in meekness, if you want to be blessed, if you want to inherit the earth, if you want to step into the assignment that God has given you, you can do nothing better than being filled and overflowing and growing in the fruits of the Spirit. So that was firstly. Secondly, to grow in meekness, we do really do need to offer our bodies, our flesh and our full selves, our old man, as a living sacrifice. Christ's work on the cross brought us salvation. Our work in Christ is to daily crucify the flesh, to die to the full self, to be filled and led by the Spirit, to cultivate the Holy Spirit in our lives, abiding in the true vine of Jesus, being matured and perfected in Christ. And thirdly and finally, we need to set our sights on things above rather than things below. The Bible calls us to remember we are seated in where? Heavenly places. That we're to walk by faith and not by sight. So let me ask you, is our vision and our trust on the world or is it on eternity and heaven? Colossians 3 verse 1 and 2 says that we should orientate our entire being towards the things above, not the things of this world. And how often when we become stressed and pressured and worried, is it because we've taken our eyes off Jesus and we're focusing on the things of the world? And this orientating is something we have to strive for, but we have to be careful where our striving is focused. Because the religious full self loves to put our striving on the things we do for God. Because doing things for God is the greatest way to avoid being transformed by God. So we shouldn't strive in our works for God. Rather, we should strive in our union with God. This is where our focus needs to be. This is how we get meek. This is part of that deeper movement, the inner paradigm shift of reorientating ourselves at the very core of our being. And we call this the inner journey. So our focus, our eyes, our vision need to be on the spiritual first and not the physical. So that's it. Time's gone. And I just want to say this one last thing and um, put it on, on the screen, Psalm 37, because when I first started preparing for this talk, I'm in the Psalms in my Old Testament reading, and I read this Psalm, Psalm 37. And I couldn't believe that verse 11 was almost identical to what Jesus had said in Matthew 5 about meekness. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. So that's basically saying enjoying peace and prosperity is blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the land. And can I ask you, I was going to read this out, but we're not going to read this together. In your own time, as well as reading Matthew 5, 6 and 7, go and read Psalm 37, because I think Psalm 37 contains the essence of what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. So as the band come up, can I pray for you? Let's close our eyes, let's bow our heads. Heavenly loving Father, 
King Jesus, beautiful Saviour, wonderful Counselor, the perfect picture of meekness and strength, of God eternal, made flesh, God with us. Father God, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't know you yet, who hasn't taken that step into light, who hasn't yet made you the centre of their being. If that's you today, can I encourage you? After the service, come and speak to someone and we'll pray with you and we'll talk to you about what it means to reorientate your life around this wonderful King Jesus, living an eternal kingdom presence. And I pray for these good people, Father God. I pray through your Holy Spirit, you will speak to them. You will bless them. You will help them step into a deeper journey with you of meekness, of your spirit, of your love. May we as a, as a community of people build you at our centre, Lord, that we too may become more and more like you. In Jesus' name, all the people said, Amen. Shall we stand and sing together?